deconstruct their faith. Last week we started a new series on deconstruction and we talked about these moments in our life when we disentangle the things we, we were taught and that we believe. Uh, these moments that make us stop and think like, maybe are my beliefs really as sturdy and as strong as I think they are? Maybe I need to go back and find out what the core foundation of faith is. Here's some of the reasons I think people re-examine what they believe. Number one, I think some people encounter other people who say they believe in Jesus, but those people don't treat other people like Jesus would. Maybe you've done that. You've met somebody, and they're like, I love Jesus, but they treat other people like garbage. And you're like, do I want to believe that same thing as that person? You know, like, I don't know if I even want to be associated with them. Some people reexamine their faith because they have an experience that voids what they were told is true. They're like, God's faithful. And then you have a moment in your life where it's like, he doesn't feel faithful right now. And it makes you stop and say, do I really believe this? Like, do I need to reexamine my beliefs? The people, uh, some people reexamine their beliefs because the people who told them what to believe have a dramatic moral failure. I've seen this where a pastor, uh, he leads a congregation, people follow him, follow his teachings, and then he has a dramatic moral failure, and people are like, if he couldn't even live this life, like, I don't know if I can, or he told me this, but he did these things. How could I really trust that what he said about Jesus was true? Um, and then number four, I think some people re-examine their faith because they read more of the Bible and they realize that some of what was handed to them was a Cliff Notes version of what it actually says. Anybody remember Cliff Notes? In college, in school, yeah, everybody's like, yes, yeah. You don't want to read the whole book, you pick up the cliff notes. It kind of gives you the main points, and you're good, and you can get away as long as the teacher's not sneaky and asks some, like, really specific question. You get the general gist. And for a lot of people, especially in American Christianity, we've got kind of the summary of the Bible, but a lot of times when we actually read through it, we're like, wait a minute, some of this doesn't all line up with what we've been told. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Public theologian Kate Boyd in her blog, The Messy Middle Christian, said, The greatest toll in my deconstruction was the Bible itself. Now, deconstruction doesn't mean you're throwing the Bible away. Many times it means you're taking it more seriously and realizing that sometimes the people who taught you about Christianity and faith really didn't take the Bible seriously at all. Somebody had handed them a Cliff Notes version, which they handed to you, which they expected you to hand to someone else. Many of our beliefs are extra-biblical. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that the Bible doesn't specifically state them. Many of these extra-biblical beliefs we hold as a result of understanding all of Scripture, understanding the big story of Scripture, things like the Trinity— like, you can't flip open the Bible and be like, here's the passage on the Trinity, right? It's, it's an idea that we, uh, that we have gathered from seeing all of Scripture and taking the whole picture of Scripture together. But extra-biblical should not be confused with unbiblical. Something that's unbiblical is opposed to the core message of the big story presented in Scripture. Um, sometimes extra-biblical ideas are, come, are the result of seeing all of Scripture as a whole. Sometimes unbiblical ideas are the result of hyperfixating on a single verse taken out of its context and out of its context in the whole of Scripture. So we need to understand Scripture so well that we can tell the difference between what's true 
and what's false. We can tell the difference between what's extra-biblical and what's unbiblical. And the more we know Scripture, the more we're going to recognize extra-biblical ideas that Scripture supports and reject unbiblical ideas that sometimes are twisted out of an individual passage. So let's just put this into practice. Should I eat a brick? Now, that seems like a ridiculous question, but it's going to emphasize the point. A lot of times we have questions that there's not a passage we can turn to the Bible and be like, should I do this? There's just not a passage on it. You, you have to look at all of Scripture and come up with a sense of what's right. There's nowhere in Scripture that says I shouldn't take a bite out of this brick. It seems ridiculous, but all the time we have people who are like, well, the Bible doesn't tell me not to, so I can, right? We've got to understand how we approach this book. There's no chapter and verse that tells me not to eat concrete, not to eat bricks, but we know that isn't what God would want. How do we know that? We've developed wisdom about God by looking at all of Scripture, by looking at how he's presented, by looking at what he wants to accomplish, what he's about. By understanding the big connected story of this book, we can make subjective decisions like don't eat that brick. But that's not always the way the Bible was handed to us. We can't turn to a specific verse about not eating concrete, but we can gain an understanding of what he wants by understanding the entire story. In Acts 17, 11, Paul takes the message of Jesus to the Bereans, and it says, Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now just think about that for a minute. So often we read something like that and we don't think about it. We just move on. The Jews who received the news of Jesus compared what Paul said to the rest of Scripture in order to understand it, in order to make sure it was true. They didn't flip open to an Old Testament passage where it was like, Paul will come to you and he will have the words of the Lord. Accept it. That's not a verse, right? They were looking at the big story of the Bible. They were looking at the big story of Scripture to see if what Paul said fit into it. We can keep taking other people's word for what's in the Bible, or we can begin to read it for ourselves and really wrestle with what's in there. And if you do that, you're probably going to deconstruct some of the things that you were told to believe. Some beliefs are a result of people telling us some things that they think are in here that simply aren't. And when you begin to take all of this as important and connected, I think it's going to make your faith stronger, but it will probably dismantle some of the simple, therapeutic, moralistic beliefs you were handed that you were told was what the Bible was all about. So as we deconstruct, as we disentangle man's opinions from God's truth, we need the Bible to help us do that. We need it to help us untangle man's opinions. So the Bible is going to be an essential resource as we deconstruct the faith. Uh, but the way the Bible was handed to most of us wasn't helpful. The way most of our churches handed uh, the Bible to us and sometimes our families isn't always helpful. According to Pastor Rich Velotis, Christians can read the Bible every day and still have their hearts firmly set against the ways of the kingdom of God. You could read your Bible every day and have your heart firmly set against the kingdom of God. He says, this is especially true when we read it to win arguments with other people. We read it to hurt other people. We read it simply to gain more information, or we read it in an attempt to earn favor with God. And yet some of us were handed the Bible to do exactly those things. 
Some of us were handed the Bible like it was a magic book. Like when you see someone doing something in their life that doesn't line up with morality and you toss Bible verses at them, you're like, this magical Bible verse will make them change their life. It'll make them change their behavior. If we just hit them with this Bible verse, it's going to make them stop. Um, anyone ever hear about LARPing, live action role playing? Come on. Yeah, yeah, some of us. Um, it got a fun shout out in the Hawkeye show on Disney Plus. But my favorite reference to LARPing goes back to this clip that went viral on YouTube a few years back. Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! Sleep! Lightning bolt! Lightning bolt! Sleep! Lightning bolt! Those are my people right there. Like, I just want to jump in there and join them. I don't know. You're probably like, that looks ridiculous. I'm like, that looks so cool. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, so what's happening here? Well, adults are dressing up in robes with foam weapons. And this one guy, he's a wizard, and he's throwing uh, tennis balls at this boss monster. And uh, every tennis ball he throws, he's, he's saying, that's a lightning bolt. It's doing lightning bolt damage. <clears throat> now, as ridiculous as that looks, ridiculous to you, awesome to me, but, you know, whatever. Um, as ridiculous as that looks, that is how most of us were told to use our Bibles. We were told to be like, oh, look at that sinner of there. Bible verse! <laughs> Bible verse! I was really afraid I was going to hit that valuable artwork. No one, sh no one shield that to the art center. We see people who are sinning, and we're like whipping Bible verses at them like they're tennis balls. Um, or maybe you saw the Bible used like this. When you're in gut-wrenching pain, your heart is broken, and someone tosses a Bible verse at you, you're supposed to be magically better. Like, God's there for you. Here's this magic Bible verse. Like, everything's good now. I was clinically depressed, but you know what? That Bible verse turned it all around. I don't need medication anymore. Thank you. It's not a realistic way to use the Bible. Or maybe you remember this old classic where you're like, God, what do you want me to do? Oh, he turns desert into a pool. God wants me to go swimming. You know, like, it's not the right way to use the Bible. The Bible is not a magic book. I remember as a teenager uh, in youth group being told to memorize verses to ward off lust and sexual sin. Now, if you want to get teenagers to doubt the power of the Bible, try to tell them that memorizing verses is more powerful than their raging hormones. They'll really quickly, they'll be like, this book can't do anything, right? The Bible is powerful, but it's only powerful when it's used as it was intended to be used. TNT is powerful, right? Dynamite is powerful, but we don't use that on heart surgery. It's not powerful in that situation. It's destructive. And sometimes we were told to use the powerful scriptures in a way that's more destructive than it is helpful. Some of us were handed the Bible like it was a rule book. Now, this is the way it was handed to me. As my family started attending church, the churches we went to, um, the churches I grew up in taught me the gospel of sin management. They're like, your whole life is about avoiding sin and controlling the sin that you have. Trying to keep the sin under control, that's what all of life is about. And they said the Bible was my guide to knowing what was sin and what wasn't sin. They would tell me, Bible stood for basic instructions before leaving earth. But you know what? The more I read this book, there was nothing basic about it. And a lot of passage, passages had no instructions. There were these genealogies and these long stories, and uh, they just kept telling me, like, keep digging and you'll find the instructions in there. You'll find the command. This way of reading the Bible gave no room for nuance. There was no difference between description when a passage tells us something happened 
and prescription. When a passage tells us to do something, they saw every passage as a commands. Uh, the passages that were endless lists of genealogies or long stories were actually just hidden commands that I had to find and follow. I've heard lots of messages where somebody came up and they took a passage where there was no command. It was just a beautiful revelation of who Jesus was and they were trying to pull out commands that we should follow out of it. And what happens is, when you take this view, it leads to creating unbiblical commands out of passages where there aren't any. And you've probably seen some people do this. They're like, well, it's in the Bible. And then they talk about how they got it out of the Bible. And it's such a twisted, convoluted scheme. You're like, what in the world are you doing? Um, some of us were handed the Bible like it was a love letter. Like God just loves you and just wants to love on you. And you just get in this word and feel his love. As I moved away from reading the Bible like a roll book, I moved to this position. If you go back and listen to my message on the Bible or my series on the Bible three years ago, I said, I read the Bible like a love letter. But as I've spent more time thinking about that, I realized that's an incomplete view. It's better than a rule book view, but it's still an incomplete view because there are commands in scripture. Yes, scripture is meditative literature. God wants to be with us. He wants us to encounter him through scripture. He wants us to sense his love, but he also tells us to do things. And the downside to looking at it purely as a love letter is, love letters compel you to do nothing but love, which is great. But there's sometimes that God wants you to join him in what he's doing. The goal of reading scripture, you ready for this? This should be our goal. The goal of reading scripture is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then to do what Jesus did. And so when it comes to where I have deconstructed in my understanding of the Bible, I now view the Bible as a library. That's how I approach it. And I'll tell you why I think that's helpful. In a library, you don't go to the fiction section to find a remedy for your foot pain, right? You don't go to the psychology section of a library to find a pleasant story to read your children at bedtime. You recognize that different sections of the library are going to have different types of books in them with different types of usages which should be approached different ways you don't take a fiction book and begin to use it as a psychology book that would be dangerous in the literature world in my undergrad i was an english major we call them genres of literature and there's different genres of literature in the bible and so we should recognize what type of literature am i reading here is this narrative is this poetic Authors use different genres to convey different messages. The Bible is full of narratives, it's full of wisdom literature, it's full of history and poetry and music. It has a national constitution in there. To read a poetic section like a historic narrative will lead to bad interpretations the author has never intended. We have to understand what section of the biblical library that we're reading in. Now, while we're talking about deconstructing how to read the Bible, how to approach the Bible, let's talk about a few of the things that churches never told me and I had to find out in seminary. I think a lot of the deconstruction that people have in their faith right now in this cultural moment is because there's a lot of things that some of us found out in seminary that the ordinary person who attend church never heard uh, that they're hearing now because they have access to it because of the internet. And I think a lot of deconstruction is pastors have been nervous to talk about some things that they're worried might make people uncomfortable or might raise uncomfortable questions, so they just avoided it. And now people are like, wait, Google says this. How come my pastor never told me about that? Maybe I shouldn't trust the other things he said because he didn't bring this up. So I think it's good to be talking about these things, to get them out in the open and say, hey, there's some areas of our faith that are really strong, like founding everything on Jesus, and there's other areas where there's been a lot of controversy, or differences, opinions for 2,000 years. 
So here's one of those things. The early church didn't have the New Testament. And when you think through that, that makes sense. But when you just hear that, you're like, what? For the first couple hundred years, right, it wasn't even fully written until 80 or 100 A.D., and most of the churches only had a letter or two. There wasn't a complete New Testament until at least 200. Most people think around 300 A.D. that these were actually bound together and churches had a full New Testament. Some churches had a copy of this letter or that letter. You see Paul saying, after you read this letter, give a copy to this church as well. And so the, there were these copies out there, but they weren't bound together. People weren't sitting down in church and reading their New Testament together. Um, the first couple hundred years of the church after Jesus, when the church exploded and spread across the Mediterranean and Europe and into Asia, it wasn't exploding and spreading because they faithfully read their Bibles. Because they didn't have a Bible yet, right? It was because they believed that a dead man came back to life. The Christian faith doesn't hinge on the Bible. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. If you could get rid of one and not the other, get rid of the Bible and keep the resurrection, right? I'm thankful that we don't have to do that. We can keep both. Like, don't misquote me here, you know? I don't want the phone calls and the emails. But if you only had one, the Christian faith would fail without the resurrection if you just had the Bible. But it would not fail if we didn't have the Bible and we just had the resurrection. The Christian faith isn't based on a book. It's based on an event. It isn't based on a book. It's based on a person. Which brings us to our text this morning. John chapter 5, 39 through 40. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders, and he says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Bible doesn't save us. Jesus does. Jesus seems to make it really clear the point of reading scripture isn't to learn moral laws, to know what sin is, to know what it's not. It's not to have magical verses to ward off sin or to convert people. The point of Scripture is to get to him. He says, Scripture testifies about me. It points to me. Sometimes we forget that Scripture is a toll, not the goal. Sometimes we idolize the Bible and forget it exists to bring us to Jesus. Everything is centered on Jesus. You're going to hear me say that again and again in this series. Sometimes American Christianity worships the idea of the Bible more than the ideas in the Bible, more than the God in the Bible. We focus so much on gaining information about Jesus, we forget the goal is to become like Jesus. The Bible is a means to an end, not the end itself. Knowing about God is good, but knowing God is better. We have people in our American Christian culture who prefer to fight for the right to have a Bible than actually read a Bible. We have people who would rather um, fight for the right to have a Bible than practice what the Bible teaches about loving your enemies. People more obsessed with getting prayer in school than they are with actually praying. We've become attached to the tokens of Christianity without becoming like Jesus, the Christ of Christianity. Now, just check out Christian Instagram, okay? After service, jump on Christian Instagram. Uh, just, you know, look at some of the hashtags. It's filled with people posting pictures of their Bible and a cup of coffee next to a Martha Stewart decorated living room. You know, look at this. Took her five minutes to read her Bible, but 45 minutes to set up this perfect shot for Instagram, you know? And that, that's kind of the Christianity that a lot of us 
were handed. The Bible, the Bible is a religious prop. It sits on our shelves while we Google verses to post on the picture of our cousin getting wasted at a party. We wield the scriptures like the Pharisees did. That's really how we do. We use scriptures like the Pharisees did as tools of oppression instead of as a tool of emancipation. The people who need to meet the Jesus talked about in scripture are disgusted by this book because we've spent so much time bashing them with it, they want nothing to do with it. If reading the Bible turns you into a vicious culture warrior instead of a loving, self-sacrificing servant, you're reading it wrong. And sometimes the way we were handed it is as a weapon to use against culture rather than as an invitation to point people to Jesus. If reading the Bible makes you judgmental and hateful, you're reading it wrong. Jesus said the entire thing pointed to him. And if you don't walk away living and loving more like Jesus, you're wasting your time reading it. And many times, if you use the Bible as a weapon, you're pointing people who need Jesus away from them. Like, you know those people who go out there and flip signs, you know, on the side of the street? It would be like you have a sign that points to Jesus. And as people walk by, rather than pointing towards the direction he is, you're beating them with the sign. It's not accomplishing your goal. If I walk by somebody and it's got a subway shop on it, you know, or something, and they start beating me with the sign, I'm not going to subway. And yet that's exactly how some of us have been taught to use our Bibles. We can idolize Christianity as a moral framework and miss the whole point to know Christ, to become like Christ. Now, at this point, you might have some objections. Um, one of the unspoken rules as ministers is we can't raise too many questions about the Bible or how we handle the Bible. People start to get real nervous. If I say anything about, like, man, maybe the way we use the Bible is dangerous or maybe it's been hurtful to people, friends start to question me. They start sending me direct messages. They start saying, like, can we set up a phone call? Like, I'm getting nervous, you know, like, uh, oh, man. And they always ask me the same thing, like, do you still believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? Um, inerrancy is one of those theological buzzwords that no one uses in real life. Like, no one uses that. I'm like, is your love for me, Darby, inerrant? <laughs> you know, like, nobody says that. Um, and whenever I would ask honest questions about the Bible before I went to seminary or after or how we approach the Bible, some well-meaning religious policemen would check to be sure I still believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. And let me just say, you can quote me on it, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But I quickly learned that many of my friends were defining the word inerrancy very differently than I was. What I've found so many times in deconstructing my faith and finding a firm foundation on Jesus to rebuild it, is that I didn't need to leave the faith, but often I needed to do a better job of finding more precise definitions for some of the words my faith threw around all the time that they didn't really realize what they meant. Uh, just because you're using the same word doesn't mean we're thinking the same thing. The word inerrancy is often wielded in Christian circles like a weapon to say who is in and who is out. As soon as you say something they don't like, I have some friends who are like, well, you don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible if you say something that I don't like or don't agree with. It's just like a way to kill the whole argument, like you're in the wrong. You've, you've, like, you've failed the critical test. They often define inerrancy as if you disagree with me on a topic in the Bible, then you don't believe that the Bible is accurate. No, I believe the Bible's accurate. I just believe that your interpretation is inaccurate. 
I believe what the Bible says and what the original authors is trying to convey is accurate. I just don't believe that 2,000 years later that we always correctly recognize what the Bible is trying to convey. Sometimes we're human and we get it wrong. Inerrancy actually means without error, or a better way of saying it is, what the scriptures conveys is true. Dallas Willard defines something true as something that corresponds to reality. When we say the Bible is inerrant, we mean it everywhere what it conveys is things that work in reality. I know that's a mouthful. What we're saying is, if our beliefs are true, they enable us to deal with reality effectively. Essentially, they work in the real world. And sometimes this is why we need to deconstruct our beliefs, why we need to rethink them, because something we've been told doesn't actually work in reality. And if it doesn't work in reality, it's not from Scripture, because everything in Scripture is inerrant, which means it's true, which means it works in reality. Whew, that was a lot of words. Everybody still with me? Yeah, okay. I know that's a... That's a roundabout way of saying something that should be really simple, but the word inerrancy has been misused so much, I feel like it was important to drive home. We believe that everything in scripture works in reality, and if something we believe doesn't work in reality, we need to deconstruct that belief because it's probably unbiblical. Sometimes the way we were taught to use the Bible doesn't work in our normal, everyday lives, and I think sometimes we think, you know what? If something doesn't work, I'll just keep telling myself it's going to work and just keep telling myself it's going to work. But no amount of insisting something's going to work if it doesn't. You don't have to convince yourself when something works, right? You just taste it, you see it, you experience it, you know it works. Okay, so um, growing up, I was often told I had to spend a quiet time with the Bible. Quiet time is such a weird word anyway. Like, who came up with this quiet time? Um, I think it was trying to capture the ancient practice of silence and solitude and scripture reading, which are important spiritual practices of Jesus and should be a part of our life. Um, but they told me that I had to spend a quiet time with the Bible each day to be a healthy Christian. But when I was young, I didn't realize what a privileged position that was. Like, for the first 1,500 years of the Christian movement, no one had a personal Bible to spend a quiet time with. The technology didn't exist to print personal Bibles for everyone. People hand copied them and each church had a Bible. You didn't have your own in your home to have a quiet time with, with your coffee, you know, so that you could uh, show off to your friends. Another thing that I didn't realize made me in a privileged position was that there's 2,200 languages in the world today that don't have a Bible translated in their language. And so are we saying that for the first 1,500 years of the church, there were no healthy Christians because no one spent a quiet time? Are we saying that of the 2,200 languages that no Christians of those people can be healthy because they can't spend a quiet time because they don't have a personal Bible to open up and read? No. I think sometimes we develop ideas about the Bible that we don't realize are privileged because we live in the affluent West and we don't recognize this doesn't work in the real world. Are we saying that hundreds of millions of people around the world and throughout history can't be healthy Christians because they're incapable of taking an Instagram picture with their study Bible and coffee in the morning? No. To our hyper-individualistic society, we've often forgotten that the Bible was meant to be read and wrestled with in community. 
We forget that the word translated you in the New Testament almost 100% of the time is the plural you in Greek. We don't have a word in English for plural you, but the closest we get is y'all. Y'all, you all. You know, like the, the stout, they were right. They were right. It's much more biblical. The Christian faith, like we'll read something from the letters of Paul and it says you, and we're like, yeah, that's me. And he's saying you all. He's like the whole Christian community. All of you together, because this isn't a book that's meant to be experienced alone, but to be experienced together. The Bible has been historically designed to be read and understood in community. And I'm thrilled. I'm delighted. I'm delighted that we have the privilege to have easy access to the Bible. When I don't have a Bible with me, I pull out my phone and I can look at hundreds of different English translations on my phone anywhere at any time. I love that access. But for thousands of years, people didn't have that access. And for millions of people around our planet, people don't have that access. And we have to recognize that some of our ideas about the Bible have been shaped by our unique experience. And yes, I'm grateful that for thousands of years, people who encountered this book claim to have encountered Yahweh, the God of the Bible, through this unique collaboration between God and man. But we need to understand that none of the authors of the Bible ever anticipated everyone having their own copy that they could read as an individual outside of community. As the people who wrote this, they never thought down, thought, man, I bet everyone will have a copy of this and they'll be drinking coffee and posting pictures online about, like that never occurred to them. But in our way of thinking, in American Christianity, like we can't imagine the Bible any other way. And what I'm asking you to do is just consider that sometimes the way we think about this book has been so, so shaped by our culture that we're no longer approaching it like the people who wrote it anticipated or expected. Now, I don't think that's all bad, but we need to recognize that when we come to this, we bring so much cultural baggage to how we come to it, how we read it, and how we use it. Reading the Bible, really digging into it and exploring it for yourself will often make you realize how much of what you believe about the Christian faith would not work outside the borders of America. We've taken an international faith and we've tried to make it American. And many times when it comes to deconstructing how I approach the Bible, it means first setting aside my Western cultural assumptions when I approach this ancient Eastern text. If you and I have a belief that doesn't work outside our modern, affluent, Western bubble, we need to dismantle that idea. If it doesn't work for all of Christianity, it should not be part of Christianity. I know some of you struggle with the Bible. Maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here. Maybe the Bible was wielded against you like a weapon. To you, I say, don't judge the Bible on how it's been used or misused against you. If scripture triggers you, like, because people would always throw Bible verses at you or beat you over the head with the Bible, start with Jesus. Read the Gospels. Look at what he said and how he treated people. Because the point is not to become biblically knowledgeable. You can know a lot about the Bible and not look like and live like and love like Jesus. The goal is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. The bedrock truth of the Bible is that it exists to point people to Jesus, not beat people to Jesus. It's a gentle guide, not a jagged edge. So this morning, I want to end again with a dangerous prayer that I'm going to invite you in just a minute to pray with me. It says this, Jesus, forgive me for the times that I have wielded the scriptures like a weapon 
or I have studied them like a proof text to defend my ideas? Will you dismantle my tendency to idolize scripture and ignore you? You said the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. Help me deconstruct the false things I have believed and build my faith on you. Let's pray. God, may this truly be the desire of our hearts that we seek you in scriptures and we don't wield the scripture as a weapon, but instead we offer it as a guide to lead people to you.